This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello, I'm Claire Southworth, and you're listening to Talking Flutes. My guest today is Elizabeth Walker, historical flute performer, teacher, and author. Hi there, Liz. Hello. Now, we're talking here on Zoom, and what would we do without it? So we hope that the quality is going to be okay. How's it your end, Liz? It's, it's, it's good. I've got a little light on my microphone, so hopefully we're good to go. Excellent. Now, you've got such a varied career to date. So I was thinking maybe a very good place to start would be if you could talk to us about how your interest in historical flutes started um, and what drew you to them. Well, I, uh, my mum uh, taught me the recorder at school, as you do. <laughs> and I also learned the flute at the same time. And then I was very lucky. I was chosen to be a, what we call then a junior exhibitioner up to a junior world college of music and uh, recorder and flute were my equal first studies. And uh, I do have to say, everyone said, you, you can't do this. You, you have to have one main study. Um, so I was always under pressure to try and choose between my recorder and my flute, but it just wasn't possible. So I did end up going to uh, Guildhall as an undergraduate uh, doing equal studies on both. And Stephen Preston was there at the time teaching Baroque flute. So uh, I, I tentatively made a start, I would say, um, when I was at Guildhall. But um, my postgraduate studies were in The Hague. And actually, I think at the time, there were very few of us going abroad at that time. It sounds really silly to say now because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's now quite a, a well-trodden path. Uh, no, but think, at the time, I think you were very brave. I think it a, was a very brave thing I to do. I felt it actually, Claire, at the time. Yeah, I felt a little bit brave doing it because nobody else was. But on the other hand, I needed to uh, be convinced myself that I'd gone far enough in what I wanted to do to get a job. And I didn't feel as if I'd made, you know, I'd really only scratched the surface on board flute. But, you know, something was drawing me to really study it. So I went out in 1989, oh, makes me feel so old, uh, to The Hague. And I studied with Wilbert Haselzett and Bart Kauken. Uh, we, we had access to both teachers, really. Yeah, I mean, Bart was teaching in, in a group-only situation. Uh, Wilbert was one-to-one. But it best of both worlds, really. So uh, my one-to-one -one teacher was Vilbert. Vilbert was playing for the principal flute in the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra, and uh, increasingly they were they were stretching that sort of beginning point of Baroque flute and starting to do repertoire which needed more keys on the flute. So he was learning. Uh, at the same time as me, which was really exciting. Um, I didn't have an eight-keyed flute. I had a really funny conversation with my dad and I said, look, dad, I, I need an eight-keyed flute and I can't afford it, I'm a student. Uh, but I happen to know that you're saving up for my wedding and I'm not gonna get married, so can I have a flute? <laughs> <laughs> Scroll forward three years. 
dad, I'm getting married. <laughs> Inevitably. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I married my eight kid flute. Um, and it was a real voyage of discovery um, and, and just so exciting. I mean, you know, to be at, the, at, at, at that sort of stage uh, globally, I guess, where, where we were discovering for the first time Beethoven symphonies on, a, on original copied instruments. So it was, yeah, it was hugely exciting. And I stretched my one year postgrad to three years in the end. Wow, fantastic. Well, I'm, really thinking, I'm thinking here that I, I was uh, studying in Manchester but didn't dare go down to London. And here's you <laughs> going off, going off to, the, to the continent. So yeah, very, very brave. Now, for those of our listeners that maybe don't know a lot about early flutes, so Renaissance flute, tell me when I'm wrong, but you're going to follow on, I'm sure. Renaissance flute, no keys, Baroque flute, one key. How'd you get from the one key to the eight keyed? Okay, so the, um, the, the, the Renaissance flute, as, as you say, has no, no keys at all. It's actually quite a complex uh, instrument um, because if you just take a stick and you, and you drill a few holes in, it's probably not going to sound very good. Uh, so I have huge respect for the makers who make these instruments and they sound gorgeous. Uh, this is actually a, a copy uh, of a Puglisi flute. So um, Philadelphia Puglisi lives in Italy, came to my flutes in Tuscany course a couple of years ago. Um, and I have had this flute actually since really early days at Guildhall. Uh, Nancy Haddon was teaching Renaissance music, not necessarily the flute. Uh, and I was lucky enough to uh, be introduced and actually given, well, I, I bought this flute from her, but she had this collection um, from Philadelphia Puglisi. Um, and the, the, the difference between this flute and, and, and the Baroque flute is, is quite an enormous step because this Renaissance flute is all in one piece. Whereas um, fantastically in, in the Baroque, we have, have the, the, the three or sometimes four different sections because you've got your foot piece, you've got your bottom section and the middle section and then your headpiece. And they called uh, a box a, a corps de change so that you could change the middle piece to, to, to shift the pitch. And that was really important at the time uh, because your organs were tuned at different pitches and where we have today A equals 440. Uh, in the Baroque times, that pitch was really shifting around. Uh, so we had the Baroque flute, and then these keys were added to what is actually a Baroque flute. So the dimensions don't change, uh, the shape of the flute doesn't change, and they sort of stuck these lever keys on in order to try and help the chromaticism, because one of the big challenges in a Baroque flute is that you have these strong notes and then you have weak notes, which is something uh, that's quite hard to control. So whereas modern flute players, we really work on every note being as even as the one next door to it. On Baroque flute, we do completely the opposite. We actually highlight the strong note compared to the weak note, which comes you know, chromatically right next door. If you look at D, C, a D is a strong note, a C is a very weak note. And that, that causes a lot of challenges when you want to actually play quite loudly. The louder you want to go on a, on a fourth note, the harder it is actually. So uh, the keys were supposed to be helping us 
to play a little bit more evenly in the chromaticism, not only in pitch, but also in strength of sound. And that was achieved by, by adding these keys, but it was a very hard flute to play actually. Uh, the eight keyed flute is a real challenge. Um, those who are doing my first in our challenge, which hopefully we can talk about a, a bit about later, but that's a, that's a, a book of studies that I, I learned on eight-keyed flute, and it's really hard. But then you've got Beethoven symphonies, Rossini, uh, Fiddly, Haydn, all quite tricky on, on an eight-keyed flute. Um, and then, you know, Boehm came along and took all of those keys off, and what we have now is a, a, a masterpiece of, of engineering uh, uh, intuition, if you like, um, and he most crucially had to redesign the key itself. Uh, so my eight-keyed flute, the, the key's down, and then I lever it up. It's a very, very simple system. Uh, but when you look at uh, what Boehm invented, he's got keys that's, that sit up, and then you press them down, which is you know, clearly quite quite a thing to invent in itself. And I, I believe Bohm was a, a jeweler, a silversmith. And that doesn't surprise me in a way that you'd need that sort of level of, of, of brilliance um, when it comes to engineering. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. Thank you. That was, you made it so clear. So in terms of all your flutes, do you have a favourite? So I, I don't really have a favourite. I, I like... Um, playing all of the different flutes for the different repertoire but I suppose if I had to have my one favorite it would be the renaissance flute just because it's it, in its purity and it's so remarkable that the maker has made this extremely beautiful sound out of what is ostensibly a stick of wood yeah that's incredible um now I know you've got a Louis Lott flute but what kind of Louis Lott do you have so this is uh, this is the only flute that I have that's original. All all my other uh, historical flutes are copies, uh, but this is very exciting to have the original. Uh, so it's number four three five, um, and uh, with a little bit of digging and research, I have found out that it was owned by a flute player called Nouvelles who lived down in Lyon. He actually ordered quite a few Louis Lott flutes. Um, and the guess is that this is one that he didn't actually play because it's in, I mean, it's remarkable. So it was made in um, 1859 in Paris. Uh, it doesn't have particularly special keywork. It's not solid silver. Um, so it is pretty basic it doesn't have any of the thrills and spills that some of them had um, and it's incredibly delicate so these posts um, at the back that it's one long uninterrupted piece of, of metal that is so remarkably undamaged so I have a feeling that this one probably went down to Leon uh, it was for a student who maybe didn't play it very much uh, and it's found its way uh, out of an attic and into my hands. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a flute of, of sheer joy and beauty. Its internal dimensions are, are almost identical to my eight-keyed flute. Uh, it has a very tapered bore, so it's much, much thicker at the headpiece and thinner down at the foot. Um, that has, that, uh, at the time, Louis Lott uh, was ex sort of making pretty much even amounts of tapered and untapered board flutes. Um, 
and equally wood and silver. So this isn't a remarkable flute because it's wooden. He, he was making a lot of wooden flutes and it's not even remarkable that it's got a tapered bore because lots of players preferred a tapered bore. And the experiment was raging at the time. And it's quite interesting that, that piccolos have always re retained this tapering, uh, but, but our flutes have, have actually that the conical bore won out. Uh, and I have a bit of a theory about this that um, hasn't been proven at all, but I know at the time that they were doing lots of experiments with projection of the flute. And my feeling is that here, at, at, at the point where you're playing, so as, as a flute player, it sounds really, really loud to me if I'm playing a, a, a flute without a tapered bore if it's got a tapered board, to me, it sounds really quiet. But I've played this flute in an orchestra and my husband's sort of popped in at the back of the, the concert hall and said that this flute just, just wow, goes right across the top of the orchestra and out the back of the, the concert hall. Um, but I don't feel that. So for me, it's a bit of a struggle. I think, oh, I can't really project my sound on this flute. But actually it's clarity. Uh, the, the sort of, you know, sparkle in its, in its projection is something that carries further. But I wonder whether flute players just, you know, felt as if it was, it was a, a challenge to project the sound across. I don't know. That's my pet theory. Oh, I like that theory very much. Now, I remember when I was at college, I swapped from a closed G-sharp flute to an open G-sharp flute. And, and that was hard enough. But how about you? How do you, is it, easy now to swap from one of your flutes to another flute because they're all so different they are and it is a bit of a challenge actually Claire. I, and, and i've also got a, a modern flute that's open g sharp and a modern flute that's closed g sharp and it depends which flute i'm playing as to which fingers i i need <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just limiting to Baroque eight-keyed Renaissance fingering. Um, and I would say, Claire, that probably I'm never going to win the prize for playing scales really fast on any of my flutes. Uh, <laughs> and I have to really, I have to really plan my life a little bit. So if you suddenly called me and asked me next week to play a flute that I'm not, I haven't got in my fingers, I would probably have to turn the, the job down. Um, so I have to plan out and hope, cross my fingers, that some of the, the, the work that I'm not in charge of, if you like, the orchestral playing, uh, comes in and fits in with the schedule that I've got in my own head. But I am quite lucky that a lot of the work that I do now, um, I, I can control when I do it. But it's not easy to, to swap. No, I can fully sympathize because I remember when I had my change for open G sharp flute, my piccolo yeah. was closed. And, mm. um, and then alto flute, I always borrowed an alto flute that was closed. And yeah. it was very confusing. And then of course, if I was, all my students of course had closed G sharp and that would confuse me again. I'd start playing my flute as a closed G sharp flute rather than open. It's, uh, yeah. you have to get your head around it. I, I, I know it was, it's tricky. In my uh, flute quartet, Festive Flutes, we used to have a table with all of our flutes and piccolos on it and alto and bass, as you say. And uh, I do now have an open uh, G-sharp piccolo, but I used to put it on the table with a, a, a ribbon on its foot because Festive Flutes were terrified that in one of those quick swap overs of flutes, they'd 
accidentally pick up my piccolo. <laughs> so, so tell me then, your modern flute then is open G sharp. Is that what you play? Is that your standard? I've got, um, I've got two modern flutes. Um, uh, I have a wooden modern flute, <laughs> which is a flute makers guild flute, and that's what I recorded um, my Bach and Telemann uh, CDs on. Um, but a couple of years ago, I, I became a pearl flute uh, artist and uh, they don't have any open G-sharp flutes. So I went back to closed, um, which is fine because my Louis lot is closed. So I, I, need, I needed to keep both going anyway, uh, but I do slightly prefer, I must say, uh, teaching with my pearl flute uh, because it looks and it sounds a lot more uh, similar to, to what my students are expecting a flute sound like. A bit difficult to, to sort of uh, launch into fast passages though, isn't it, when you've just changed over? They're very forgiving to me, actually. Uh, all I have to do is say, ah, oh, sorry, in a patch of work that's not on this flute. And they forgive me the fact that I've just made an absolute pig's dinner. Of, of a passage that I should be, as a teacher, I should be able to play with my eyes shut. <laughs> I think you should, I think you should talk to Pearl and get them to make you a nice open G sharp. That would be, that would be interesting. That would be very interesting. But then I couldn't play my Louis Lot. So yeah, it's, life's not simple for me, Claire. Simple, is it? I so, don't make life simple. Now I was talking about, um, um, I think I was talking earlier, you know, I forget because we've moved on so much, but when I was, um, when I was at college, I had a Baroque flute made and I read Quantz's book on playing the flute and tried to teach myself disastrously. It was really, oh, no. I had great trouble in resourcing anything about Baroque, Baroque performance. Now you've written the book that I so desperately needed all those years ago, which I oh, think is called Baroque Flute Studies. Can you tell us about that? Uh, so all I did with my uh, my book, I, I had a, a, an operation on my ankle. Uh, it was basically rebuilt um, and it took me off my feet, literally. I mean, I was unable to even put any weight through my left side for nearly a year. So I was sat there thinking, what am I going to do with all this extra time on my hands? And I'm not very good at having a lot of spare time on my hands. So... <laughs> I sat down and I thought every year, you know, the, the, the passions come round. So that's the Matthew passion that has four Baroque flutes in it. So if you have no other work during the year, you can pretty much guarantee as a Baroque flute player, you're going to get a Matthew passion. Um, so each year, you know, it would come to February and I'd be, be just opening the drawer and finding all the little pieces of paper that I had over the years to get me back into shape for the Matthew Passion. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just collect up all of these little words of wisdom that I've caught from yeah, studying with Vilbert and, and Bart um, and, and Stephen Preston primarily and put them all in, in a book together. So I didn't really intend uh, my Baroque flute book to be anything other than a little bit of sort of guidance to players, but, I can see now that actually it, it has got in it 
um, pretty much everything you need to know from a complete beginner's perspective. And that's because I tried very hard to find the right sort of exercises and, and explain that real, real challenge that modern flute players have. Uh, because it's what I'm doing every every time, Claire, that I I swap on back onto my brock flute. I have to go through the same processes myself, uh, you know, just because I've played the brock flute for, for 30 odd years uh, doesn't mean that it's it's not um, automatic every time I swap back onto it. So I just tried to, you know, clarify the process that I go through to swap from modern on to Baroque all the time. So I think it has turned out to be a far more useful book than I ever dreamt that it would be actually. Um, just because I, I put in that sort of that time to try and work out while my feet were in the air. Well, you know, <laughs> what I do. I don't like to say it, but thank goodness you had a problem with your foot because otherwise we wouldn't <laughs> You know, Baroque performance, I always think it's it's something of a mystery for so many flute players, well, yeah. players in general. So it's it's wonderful to have sort of clear information to sort of help lead us through the maze of, I suppose, ornaments and meter and articulation um, and, and, yeah. and many other things. Um, there's, now, there's a lot unwritten, isn't there, in, in Baroque music? Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a because of the, the difficulties they had in, in, in producing, um, you know, copies of music. A lot of the information that you need is not on the page. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of instruction when you play contemporary music, um, but there's very little when you play Baroque. So there are, there are you know, little, little bits of the jigsaw puzzle, if you like, that you need. So, you know, you've also written a second book, which is Baroque Studies for the Modern Flute. So, yes, because I had to have a second operation because the first oh. one wasn't entirely successful. <laughs> so they went back in again the following year with the same knife and fork and, oh, and no. cut the foot open again. Um, so yes, I had to do a second book then. <laughs> at least I can say that at least you don't have to have a third operation this year because in lockdown, you've got no. more time on your hands and maybe a third book's coming. Uh, funny you should say that, Claire. <laughs> there is a third book coming. <laughs> Which is? Uh, so I've just done a book of uh, Baroque vocalese. So I've just taken some really, really beautiful um, arias that uh, singers absolutely love singing. And uh, my husband has very kindly helped me write out a harpsichord part. And I've done all the instructions again um, on, on how, you know, how to phrase, how to ornament, how to, how to shape. Um, and that one is uh, going to be published pretty fast, actually, because I need it for a, a course that I'm running in Benslow in February. So, in fact, I've, I had to finish that one really quite, quite sort of uh, quickly. And it's, it went off to the publishers yesterday. So uh, fingers crossed that one will come out pretty soon. Oh, very exciting. Now, how are you going to run a course on Zoom? Yes. So uh, back... In the very first lockdown in March, I found out that my brother was a, um, a specialist in Zoom technology. Uh, James Stanbridge is his name. And he, I, I'd, I'd had a chat with him and I was so impressed with um, the, the courses at Benslow that were all, um, at that time, they were all canceled, um, but they honored all of their musicians that were running the courses and tried to give them some sort of financial benefit from, from all of this canceled work. Um, 
And so I had a chat with them and I proposed rather uh, cheekily uh, a couple of courses and put them in touch with my brother and they had a couple of sessions and we worked out um, together how we might put one of these courses uh, together. And we ran that pretty fast actually in April. I, I moved on April 1st and then when the first course was on the 7th, I think. So it all happened very, very fast. And since then, um, they've done 70 odd online courses, which is fantastic. And the first group that signed up to my first course, which was on the Telemann Fantasias, um, came back for the second one, uh, which was, um, I'm going to have to check all of this because we've done so many now. Uh, so we did, yeah, we did Telemann in April, we did Bach uh, in May, and my dear Dear friend Sarah Murphy joined me as a as a as a second tutor because we had so many by then, and then I, we looked at Mozart flute concerto at Handel in July, and we did the flute school in October, and uh, we're coming back together in February to look at uh, vocalese. So we'll be doing um, Schubert, uh, some Strauss four Strauss songs that I arranged many years ago. Uh, the lovely Richard Shaw is going to do the accompaniments uh, so that we have those to use during the course. Um, and we'll look at the foray, the Messian, the Poulenc vocalese, uh, the Hetich, um, wonderful arias. And then my new book of Baroque. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be really exciting. And we, it, we do them for five days. Uh, and during the five days, we all come together at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day for an hour. And then during the day, you get a 30 minute one to one lesson with Sarah or with me. Um, and it's been working really, really well. It's so inclusive. And I cannot believe, Claire, that I haven't actually met all of these wonderful flute players on this course because they feel like friends. We've, we've been through lockdown from March, well, from April together and it's a wonderful wonderful close-knit group but uh equally you know if you fancy joining um we're all very friendly <laughs> so it's worked incredibly well actually it sounds like you've been incredibly creative over this uh, very difficult time now i know you've got uh, um you teach at wells and you've got yes. a challenge happening it with the students yes yeah, so so what um I don't know, I must have gone a slightly into to hyperdrive in March. I think it's because we were moving, Claire, and I was in avoidance. I didn't want to look at the fact that we were moving on April 1st. So instead, I was just sort of locked into these creative ideas. And uh, we did a Boehm challenge. So um, I've often with my students said to them on, on a Sunday, if I've got nothing on, I'll sit and play all 24 Boehm caprices in one setting and I don't think they ever quite believed that that was possible so I set them the challenge that they were going to play all 24 which they did on the 1st of June and then in the lead up to the 1st of June I just thought you know they need to see more than just me on a screen because uh, whilst I'll try and entertain them as well as I can um, it feels a bit sort of I don't know as if they needed a bit more variety so I set off asking various um, musicians, uh, flute players, if they would mind just filming themselves talking about one of the 
pieces. And it just grew into this amazing project where, I, I mean, I'm just so grateful to my colleagues who came up with fantastic, fantastic performances and little nuggets of, of gems of, of, of helpful information. And so I collected all those videos together. Uh, they're now on my uh, YouTube site, uh, collected into a playlist, and we've also got them on Facebook. And then, of course, you know, we go back into another lockdown in January, which I can't believe has happened again, <laughs> to be honest. And I thought, right, we have to do this again. So we're doing the 24th Worcester now. Um, we haven't really started yet. I actually recorded number one uh, yesterday. It should be coming out when I've spliced it all together um tomorrow which will be friday the i don't know which day where, where are we claire where, where, oh, 14th, 15th, something of january the 15th. Where are we? 15th okay so that's when we're launching it uh i've got the most impressive list of another 24 fantastic flute players they'll each do a video each week and we'll finish uh on april the 24th and we are crossing everything that on April the 24th we can come together uh, for real, maybe, uh, in Wales, hopefully, uh, in, in our wonderful new Cedars Hall at Wales. And if we can't, then we will do it again um, in, in lockdown. We did it last time. Uh, so we all played through together. Uh, and you can use your mute button. And I had different students who, who are um, leading each of the, the studies. But it's, uh, you know, it's a really great, if you, if you do fancy joining us, you know, it's a good way of learning. I mean, it comes thick and fast, I have to say, you have to learn a, a study a week, at least. Sometimes you get one on a Monday and on a Friday, but you can store them up, you can come back to the videos, uh, you can do it at whatever, le you know, sort of level or depth as, that you want. But I have to say, you know, listening to 24 different amazing flute players, um, everyone, everyone bringing in a different sort of nugget uh, has been really fun and, and they're so generous to have done that and we also are raising money for help musicians as we go along so as I post them on Facebook you can donate or oh, I've got a Just Giving page if you don't want to join in but you think yes this is a good cause uh, you can just sponsor us. But how do people find the YouTube? I think if you probably if you Google Elizabeth Walker YouTube, it should come up. Okay. Um, and then it's a playlist on my on my um, on my site is where the berms are. And your and then we'll, is Liz at uh, www.lizwalker.co.uk. Okay, brilliant. So that, that's amazing that um, although lockdown has, has put a stop to you know live performances when you could be attending in person you've actually created an awful lot of of music that people can access um and um so just going back to your teaching at wells are you teaching modern flute ju just modern flute or do you also teach baroque flute there so i i just at the moment teach modern flute but i have have over the years had um, great success with students who wanted to give it a go uh, and have actually gone very far. Um, it really depends on the student, Claire. If, if I've got somebody who, who fancies giving it a go, we have a school flute um, and I have, you know, great enthusiasm for starting them off, um, but it's not appropriate for everyone. Yeah. Um, now you've also got a book on Baroque studies for the modern flute. 
So I'm assuming yes. that is, okay, so it's all played on modern flute. And are you talking then about how to play your modern flute like a Baroque flute? Um, uh, what I think is that if you have a certain amount of knowledge, uh, those things I was saying before, the, the stuff that's not on the, written on the, on the page. So um, attention to swinging the beats, maybe the inegality that comes into the French Baroque dances. Uh, if you think about the way that the tone um, has, a, has a, no vibrato or vibrato only used as an ornament. If you think about the articulation, the lightness, um, if you think about the harmonies and learn a little bit about um, the basso continuo. Um, so swinging the beats, the meter, the, the articulation and the, and, the, and the basic setup of the sound. I think if you can absorb some of that, um, then you're going to get a little bit more out of playing music. So they're the things that I really try and home in on. It's a very different book from the Baroque flute book mm -hmm. because it doesn't tell you how to play uh, the modern flute. I'm not going to help you with, with your fingerings or your trill fingerings or anything like that, but I'm hoping to just introduce some of the dance styles, some of those key elements that, that bring to me Baroque music alive on a modern flute. And it's something that I have um, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about because I recorded the Talman Fantasias, which people find really surprising that I didn't do that on my Baroque flute. Um, but I did it on modern flute because I wanted to be able to help those students who say to me, I can go and listen to Bart Calkins recording on a Baroque flute and Rachel Brown's, but that I'm not playing that flute. So how do I do that on a modern flute? And that's why I ended up recording them on a modern flute. So it's a bit like- I think it is entirely possible. Because Baroque pieces um, played on a modern flute stylistically correct, but not authentic. Would you say that? Yes, yes, I would. And, and I think, you know, if you listened to my Telemann Fantasia recording, uh, you might even think at times that I might be playing a Baroque flute. And I mean, that's sort of my aim in a way, to get so close to the style that actually it could almost have been me playing. Mind you, having said that, Claire, I did a, a big experiment in December. I did a concert for Benslow, uh, which I think you can still access actually. And I, and I did some of the Fantasias on a Baroque flute and some on a modern. And I do have to say that each time I picked up the Baroque flute and played them on the Baroque flute, I felt delighted and happy and uh, and the ease of, of which that music comes to life on your bot flute is, is, is easier than on a modern flute. So it's a slight challenge on a modern flute. Um, so I think probably I answered my own argument, if you like. Uh, but I'd be interested to see what other people feel. Because um, obviously, as, as a player, it's a, it's a different thing than, than doing it as, as a listener. Um, but um, I think that's the bravest I ever want to be, Claire, to be honest. I think that's it now. I've, I, I can put my hat down and say, okay, I've done that. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, it's, you've, you've achieved an awful lot. What's, what are your plans for this next year, if you can plan anything? Uh, well, we, we had to cancel um, Flutes in Tuscany. Uh, 2020. Uh, so I, I really want to plan 
2021. Um, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about doing that at the moment. So it's all a little bit paused. Uh, but as soon as I feel a bit more confident that we can do it, um, that would be a lovely aim to, to get Flutes in Tuscany back up and running in Italy uh, this summer. Uh, lots of uh, postponed concerts um, that were heartbreaking. So, uh, you know, as soon as we can get back out there and do those, um, my group Continuum had a concert yesterday, would have had a concert yesterday that's been in the diary for two years. One of those that you spend a lot of time planning uh, and get so excited about, Claire. And I cannot believe, because uh, it was cancelled, you know, pretty late in, in December. Um, so that was a bit heartbreaking, but it's it's in the diary. It's, it's going to be January 2022. So <laughs> just can't wait, actually, to see the musicians to, to be working together and collaborating again and uh, not have to, um, you know, tentatively feel that you can't get too excited because it might be cancelled. Yeah, I must say it's, really the whole thing is so tragic because it seems that music has been the least supported and yet it's one of the most important things. People listen to music every day and I can sort of see music sort of disappearing from people's lives at this rate. So it's up to all of us to try and keep momentum going and, and keep putting things out there, which you have done an awful lot of, so, so well done. I think it's very, very important. And, and, and whilst people have got this little bit of time, I think that there, there are so many people that have felt connected, uh, even if it's um, on Zoom. Um, and, you know, brilliant that, that um, music has, if you like, uh, shown us that way. But um, it is it, it, getting back to, to live concerts, having the confidence to go to a concert hall it's, it does feel, it does feel as if we're a long way from that right now, doesn't it? It does, but, but hopefully in a few months when we all get our vaccination, um, we'll be able to do yes. that. Liz, it's been fabulous to talk to you and fascinating. Thank you. A little bit of an insight into early music and, and early flutes. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and good luck for all your various projects. Well, thank you very much, Claire. It's been delightful to have this chance to chat to you. Yeah, and you, Liz. Bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to the wonderful Liz Walker, and I'm all enthused now to read her books and study my Baroque interpretation a little bit more. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Do email me your thoughts and any questions, or even ideas for future podcasts. Our address is flutepodcasts at gmail.com. And until next time, goodbye for now. Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit